On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to endeavor to lift a cloud a little bit. I mean, it's been a rough week. It's been a rough time. Everyone's a bit stressed out. Everyone's feeling it. We're going to pull back just a little bit. We're not going to bludgeon you with Covo, Corona. I can't even say it now. Covovirus, I was going to call it. We'll mix the two words together and come up with a new thing altogether. Heaven help us. No, 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 no. Anyway, we are going to talk a little bit about the money because there is a lot of money from the government being spent on this. That's good. I mean, I think most people agree that has to happen. My question is, where do we borrow this money from? Whenever governments borrow for money, where are they borrowing it from? I don't know if anyone else has ever thought about this, but something just never dawned on me where that answer comes from. Uh, We're going to be talking also in a much lighter vein with a Hamilton woman who just, because it kind of got lost because of everything that's happening, got the dream of dreams. If you are someone who likes trivia, she got to compete on Jeopardy last week. We'll talk to her. And uh, Ben and I are going to be chatting about what your options are for sports now that everything is shut down. You might want to wear a jock for this discussion. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We know that the federal government has come out with its package that it is going to be giving to to Canadians to help them through these times. Uh, $27 billion of cash and $55 billion, if I have my numbers right, of deferred taxes and things like that. Where does that money come from? Because again, I know everyone's going to say, well, we borrow it. Yes, we do. Who do we borrow it from? Well, people who lend it to us. I I know, but who are those people? Well, I can tell you someone who will know the answer to this one. He is the busiest man in Hamilton media these days. You see him at least 37 times a day on some newscast somewhere or hear him. His name is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. And we're thrilled that you're doing that, Marvin, because you are carrying the load here. We're trying. We're trying. Well, I know there's a lot of people doing it. I'm just trying to do my little part. So th- this this stimulus package, and I think right. most people are saying, look, they, they obviously had to do something. It's good they're doing something. We we don't want people to drown in the middle of this right off, right off the stop. Yep. Um, but we don't, as a country, have a giant bank vault with billion-dollar bills lying in it that in times like this right. we can just go dip into. Sure. We have to get this money from somewhere. Right. I know we're borrowing from lenders. Who are the lenders? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to answer your question, but let me just back up to the bailout package that you talked about. You're not wrong, but I just want to add two words to what you said, and that is we're going to spend up to $27 billion to support people over the next 15 weeks and up to $55 billion of deferred taxes because we don't know how long we need to do this. So this is week one of our sort of self-imposed social distancing. Uh, Do we have to do this for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks? And even the government who's got approval or is getting approval when they recall Parliament to quickly vote on this for a program that will run up to 15 weeks, that's three and a half months, but they've also made it clear, look, if we need more, we're going to go back. So it's just a good first attempt. Now, where do you get this money from? Well, you do this through what we call treasury bills. This is government 
uh, debt that people purchase and what people want to buy this. Uh, people like pension funds, insurance companies, because the government always pays. So it's nice, guaranteed investment. It doesn't generate a lot of, of interest. In fact, here's the funny thing. They're going out and borrowing this money when we've also chopped nearly a point off the borrowing rate. So they're getting it a little cheaper than they would have just a few weeks ago. But those companies who have to like, take a pension fund I've got to manage that money for retirees for the next 20 years, 30 years. I can't be having my, my pension lose 30% of the value because of stock market, so I tend to buy what are called bonds. These are people's debt, and I'm looking for good quality debt because I just can't afford to see all that money that people save suddenly disappear on me. And those are the people who will be buying that. This will be considered very secure and, and top-quality bonds, People will have no problem selling these on the market. Would these be exclusively within North America? Companies that would be doing this would be buying or lending this money? Not necessarily. So uh, it could be uh, a pension fund out of Norway. It could be a pension fund out of uh, England that would be buying this. Uh, again, you'd like to diversify where you are buying or investing your money just in case one country has more ill effects than another, so you tend to spread it around. Something like the Canada Pension Plan uh, sits on, and I, I, I'm sorry I don't have the number just at the tip of my tongue, but probably something like $150 billion worth of investments it's got to manage for you and I collectively to make sure our Canada Pension Plan is there when we need it. And so they, they look for opportunities truly globally to buy securities that are going to give them some return on their investment, but are also secure. And so when Canada issues paper, it's considered to be some of the top quality paper out there. You mentioned England or Denmark or some of these other countries or Norway that are safe havens, I guess we'll say. I mean, they're responsible countries, but we always or we often hear people say that China owns a lot of our debt or that we, you know, that this, what's that all about? Do we have a lot of debt that is held by China or Chinese companies? Well, I'm going to say yes. Again, I haven't tracked it all right down to the nth degree, but uh, China, when it sells products, and remember, generally speaking, it has a very favorable balance of trade, meaning it imports less than it exports, so it generates uh, a surplus of cash from that. They don't just park it in a checking account and earn nothing on it. They're also looking for very effective ways to, to invest their money. Uh, a story that most people will forget, a few years ago, the United States was lecturing China on something or other and saying, you're a bad country because you're doing those things and they took their reserves of cash and they sold some of it that was in american securities and bought european securities and that move changed the price of the american dollar by one-tenth of a cent now that's not a huge amount and and that was because they just wanted to send a signal to the united states that if if we really don't like everything you're saying we have the power now to affect you economically now, Canada, we're a much smaller player on the world market. So, yes, I'm sure China holds some of our debt, but that would be another tool, I suppose, down the road if we start lecturing them too much about the state of things that they could even use to affect our economy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about the money behind what's going on right now, not the markets, the government bailout that has been 
offered up that has been put out there that could be up to $27 billion to get people through where we are right now. We're on the phone, as we often are, with Marvin Ryder. When we need to talk about things like this, we turn to Marvin because he is, I think, the best at doing this anywhere. And uh, so if you're ever wondering why we talk to Marvin so much, that's why. When you find the best person to do it, you stay with the best person. Uh, Marvin, during the break, we had someone call in and ask, because of what you were just explaining and because of the, the debt and the bonds, all the way, could the Canada pension be at risk at all for seniors in this country? No. Everyone should relax on that. The last report on the Canada pension plan was that uh, they have enough cash in there to get them to the year 2100, uh, that they, they can work out all those actuarial needs. How much money do they need for all the retirees? But what they're trying to do always is to keep growing that cash. Uh, what do retirees want? You've seen this today on social media. Hey, uh, you know, we could use a little cash to get through this difficult time, too. Why don't you raise it up a little for us? Well, the only way you can do that is, of course, if you invest it wisely and generate some good returns. And I'll be candid, right now, we're not really worried about whether they're generating great returns on the investment. We just don't want them to lose any of it. When you see a market, as we have, drop nearly a third, if the pension fund is only down 5%, that's a very well-managed pension fund that they've been able to turn on a dime and shift their resources to minimize their exposure to these, these really gigantic swings that you're seeing on the stock markets. Let me throw one at you. Now, you are a financial guy, not a lawyer. Uh, that said, th- I want to ask you something that probably crosses both fields. There is a group in the States that has said it's going to be launching a $10 trillion international lawsuit against China for its handling of the coronavirus, for letting it escape the country, and for what the result has done to the world's economy. Assuming they're serious about this, and I don't know if they are or if it's just ridiculous, is there any kind of international protocol for a lawsuit against a country from another country? Well, this would be called a liability lawsuit, and they're say- basically the concept here is that they're saying because of your actions, or in this case maybe your inactions, uh, you've caused something to happen. So let's suppose I've designed a bridge, and because of my faulty design, it collapses and 100 people die. They're going to sue me because I've screwed up. The problem here is going to be fi- is finding who has made the error. If you are a Canadian citizen and for whatever reason you get sick with something like this and then you start to spread it, how can I sue the government? The government didn't make you get sick. The only way this would work is if you could prove that this coronavirus was something that the Chinese government was uh, working on in some lab. It was some kind of chemical warfare that uh, escaped the lab and they were personally responsible but the fact that it started in a wet market, may, or it may have started in a wet market in Wuhan, a wet market is a place that sells sort of exotic game, exotic things. Um, I don't think you can hold China responsible for this. Uh, and even its response, if you look at it, its response has been pretty good. Today there were 39 new cases in China. Their shutdown, which was in early February, really seems to have made a difference. We could maybe point the finger at some other places, ultimately, when the dust settles here, that will be much worse off and not containing it. So it's a fun thing to say we're going to have a class action lawsuit, but to actually be able to prove that liability at the heart of it, much more difficult to do. Some have suggested that China's handling, uh, that the cover-up, not letting people know that this would be similar to... um well, that perhaps China, you know, we, we talk about in warfare or after war, you have reparations that perhaps China should be on the hook for worldwide reparations. 
But I think what you're saying is unless you can establish that there was malice or intent or, or direct cause, it would be pretty difficult to establish that. And in fact, you know, again, I realize a lot of people want to point the finger at China, but China contacted the World Health Organization in December 2019 to indicate that they had a, a cluster of cases going on that was a concern. This is all part of the international protocols. If you've got one of these things, you have to notify the World Health Organization. They did. Uh, the World Health Organization investigated and so on and so forth. There is no sign that China actually has been lying to us or hiding this. We've always been a little suspect on their numbers, and there was a time early in the virus where there was one day a, a significant jump because they were counting them a little differently. But on balance, I'd say China's done done the right thing. Now, it may be the rest of the world that has not responded, and that's really what the WHO officials were trying to say. When we tell you there's something serious here, you need to treat it seriously. The governor of Florida, for instance, who refused to close beaches, I would say he was not treating it seriously. Now, is he personally liable for anyone in Florida who gets sick because they were exposed on a beach? Hard to say that. Uh, you know, He was working with the best information he had, but I, there's many other people who I think have been irresponsible during all this. I'm not sure I can say it's all China's fault here. It is, uh, it's a fascinating topic, and we're talking about enormous amounts of money, and uh, maybe someday next week we'll get around to figuring out uh, how do we pay this back someday, because uh, money doesn't live in a vacuum, and eventually that has to happen. But you know what? We'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll save those now, difficult stories for later. Can I, can I steal 10 seconds? Yeah, from of you course, of course. say that there are two forms of support. So that $27 billion, which is for individuals, is really going to be borrowed money. The other one, the $55 billion, is tax deferment. It's not forgiveness. They're saying if you owe money, we're going to give you a little more time to pay it, but you're still going to have to pay it. Don't get in your head it's not there. So this is like having a line of credit at the bank. It's not borrowing that gets added and you're suddenly like a mortgage, you've got to make a payment every month. You're going to use your line of credit to buy you a little time, but ultimately that money is going to have to be paid. And I think that's important for people to realize the government, which is just you and I, still needs its cash flow to keep functioning. But what they've said is we're prepared to hold off a little on that for a few months to keep that money still in the economy, doing the good things it needs to do in the economy. But we're not forgiving you. You still have to pay it at some point. So it's quite, those two numbers come from two quite different sources. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate it. Thank you for all you've done this week, uh, helping clear this up for a lot of people. Go have a glass of wine now. Hopefully this is the last one for you for at least yeah. a couple of days. Well, thank you. We, we'll try. Now, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, always appreciate having him on. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, the coronavirus is in the back pocket. We are going to be talking to someone who just competed on Jeopardy, the dream of everybody who has ever played trivia, but like me, are just too stupid to do it. We'll live vicariously through a Hamilton woman who got the chance. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last Friday, at the time that everything was beginning to get shut down and we heard about the NBA closing and the NHL closing and Major League Baseball closing and stores closing and restaurants closing and bars closing and everything closing, we, of course, missed a few things because our heads were spinning. A lot of information to take in that day. And one of the things that many of us probably missed, I did, sadly at first, thankfully a Rick Zamperin tweet from here at CHML, he sent out a tweet with a picture, made me alert, alerted me to it. But one of the things that we may have missed was Jeopardy that night. Because, you know, Friday the 13th, 
And then this, yeah, it was, it was a night that that may have happened, that you may have missed it. This matters because one of the contestants that night was a woman from Hamilton. It's a rarity. It almost never happens. Pete Diakowski, the former Ticat, has been on. And there have been a few other people from this area. I know there's been one from Burlington recently, and there was one from Grimsby. Other than Pete, though, I can't remember the last time somebody was from Hamilton. But Kim Lifeso was. She is an Associate Director of Scientific Training, which probably just the name itself is enough resume to get her onto Jeopardy. But she is also a contestant who was able to live that dream of everybody who's ever played trivia games. And she joins us now. Kim, thanks for doing this today. Hey there. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. You, you are now, I mean, to all your friends, to everybody who knows you, you're now a, a trivia goddess, right? You can walk around just saying, I was on Jeopardy, and that pretty much opens every door. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure that that's true, but <laughs> thank you for saying it. I have taken the online Jeopardy test along with a lot of other people. And Rick, as I say, Rick Zamperin, who put the tweet out with your face from the TV, he's taken it too. And both of us looked at each other today and said, like, the show is hard. The online test is impossible. Like, getting through that is an impossibility. How did you even do that? I mean, you're obviously very bright, but how did you even do that? <laughs> well, thank you. It's, um, it is quite a procedure. Um, I've been watching since I was a kid, so it was a bit of a life of lifelong goal. Um, I had taken that online test a few years in a row and just, you know, never heard anything back like you do. And then in 2018, I took it in about April and they called me in July to say, hey, do you want to come to an in-person interview? Um, so, of course, I was thrilled to do it. I drove down to Detroit. Um, you take a test. You do all the sort of gameplay. They make sure you can, you know, talk in public. Mm-hmm. And then they say you know, thank you very much. We're not going to tell you how you did. We could call you anytime in the next 18 months. And then, you know, pretty much 18 months had gone by. And I got the call in the middle of December of 2019 just to say, hey, you know, do you want to come on the show? And of course, I was so thrilled. Had you figured by that point that you had been forgotten or skipped or out of the loop? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They tell you at the in-person audition that a lot of people have to do the in-person audition three or four times before they get on. So I just thought, okay, you know, I'll keep trying. And so they said, do you want to come on? And that was in December. Now we're in, when did you actually tape the show? So they gave me a month's notice. So they told me in the middle of December to go in and film in the middle of January. What does one, okay, now everybody has their areas that they're, you know, they're good at trivia wise or knowledge wise, but when you finally get this, what does one do to prepare so that when you get on the set, you don't, well, I I mean, look, there's some people who would go there because they've decided they're going to kick butt and they're going to win this thing. And there's others like me who would say, oh, please just don't let me make a fool of myself. What, what do you do? What do you do to make sure it's not the latter? Oh, oh, that was my main goal, just to knock it up there and make a fool of myself. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I bought a bunch of like trivia books and general knowledge books, and I made notes. And there's also a huge, weird, dark corner of the internet that's all about Jeopardy preparation. So I just spent hours and hours taking notes and getting ready. Do you have um, what I like to call a sticky brain? Can you read something once or twice? And that knowledge, if you read a trivia answer, will it stick there? You know, it's funny. For some things, absolutely. And then for other categories, I could study them for hours. And if I get asked the question, nope, absolutely not. 
So what, okay, so what were the categories then or category that you were praying was going to come up other than probably scientific research? Yeah, yeah. If it was was biology, I was prepped and ready. Um, I had done a fair bit of studying because there's a lot of American stuff on it. Mm. It's an American show. So I learned my state capitals and my American presidents, and I felt like I was pretty ready for that. Um, and I was just praying that there wasn't going to be too much like military history. I found that to be the worst. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've thought about it a little myself and I'm thinking, okay, you know, sports, TV, pop culture, a number of things. Um, you know, presidents, wives, middle names would probably be the category that would come <laughs> up if I ever got on there. And I just stare blankly at the screen and look like a moron. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. If not genius, you got to be pretty smart to get onto Jeopardy. That is for darn sure. And to get onto Jeopardy and then not finish like Wolf Blitzer did once upon a time in a celebrity game when the guy, you know, the CNN guy, he was awful. He was horrible. He like, there are people who live on the street who have never been to school in a developing country that would have done better than Wolf Blitzer at some of these things. He was atrocious. Anyway, uh, Kim Lifesell from Hamilton, uh, not Wolf not Wolf Blitzer, for sure. She did very well. She was on there last week. As I say, it's unfortunate that you may not have seen some of you, her appearance, because it was Friday night in the middle of everything going on in the world. But um, nonetheless, Kim is, uh, Kim is with us. And Kim, just before we went to the break, I said, I want to get back and talk about the experience when you finally get there. Is it a little, you said you've watched it since you were a kid. Is it a little surreal when you walk onto the set then and you're looking around and you go, man, I am about to do this. Yeah, it was, it was completely surreal to see, you know, the thing that you've been seeing on TV forever, unchanged there in the flesh, the, the stage itself where you play is a lot bigger than you think. And the audience is a lot smaller than you think. The handwriting on the names, I have to ask you, is generally horrible. Is it hard to write your name on that device? Yeah, it, it's surprisingly tough. The pen is sort of big and ungainly, and you're really not used to it. And so they tell you to write it as big and legibly as you can, which leads to you writing like you're in kindergarten. <laughs> oh, well, at least you got to see your name. And then the thing starts, is there a moment of... Uh, well, you and I already established that both of us would share the same view. We just don't want to make a fool of ourselves if we're there. But when the music starts and Alex Trebek walks out, is there a, a brief moment of cold sweat and panic or is it just excitement? Oh, absolutely. No, I was panicked the entire time throughout. <laughs> there was never a moment of relaxation in the entire filming. So you didn't cool, even after a couple of questions, it never got like I can breathe. No, absolutely not. When I did have Pete Diakowski on here, uh, again, for those who don't know, he was a former Ticat player and uh, won a tournament here in Canada called Canada's Smartest Man. I mean, he's a guy who's got a resume. His comment was his biggest mistake when he was on Jeopardy was that early on he got an answer wrong and then looked at the scoreboard that I guess is in the view of the players and saw himself in the negative and then all the pressure just built on itself and you just, you create more problems for yourself. What did you do, if anything, to try to not let the pressure get to you. Oh, yeah, because I was in the negative for quite a bit of the game. Um, You know, it it just moved so quickly that I I found that I didn't really have time to dwell on it. All you had to do was focus, and I wear glasses, and so I found that trying to read the clues was actually kind of tricky because they were far away. 
So I was focused so hard on reading and listening that I didn't get too caught up in what my score was. So unlike people at home, when it takes up the screen and you can read the clue, it's difficult for the contestants to read it. You just basically have to go by the hearing Alex Trebek say it. Yeah, like it comes up on the screen, but it's a solid 30 feet away. So yeah, it's tricky to read it. What were, by the way, what were some of the categories that you got? Oh boy, let me see if I can remember. Um, there was there was one about something I had not studied for at all called the Hajj. Like, uh, so I was a little taken aback by that. There was a lot more sports questions than I would have wanted. I'm not a big <laughs> sports person. Um, but the final Jeopardy category that I got was on birds, which I felt I had pretty good chances. Okay, so I've got the final Jeopardy question, which, by the way, you did get correct. So if nothing else, and you did not finish last, you finished second, uh, which is great. You finished out of the hole. You finished in the positives, which is great. Uh, And you got final Jeopardy. So if nothing else, you can leave by saying, I did that, because most people can get other questions, not this one. I'm going to read the final Jeopardy question. I'm going to give everybody about 10 seconds to think about this. And then you got it right. A uh, black-footed and bra- and black-browed. Black. Let me start again. I can't even read. <laughs> black-footed and black-browed are two species of this seabird, whose name was influenced by the Latin word for white. Anybody out there think they would know what that bird is? You knew it, Kim. What was it? At, so the answer that took me a minute to come up with was albatross. Albatross, um, yes. One of yeah. your the other contestant, one of your other contestants, the winner came up with albatross, right? Yes, she did. And the other guy who was there came up with booby, which is totally natural, right? If you think of that blue-footed booby that you've seen a bunch of times, I almost wrote it myself. Yeah, it's uh, you know the unfortunate part though for him is because he got it wrong for the rest of his life he is going to be the guy who came up with booby as the final Jeopardy answer even oh, if it was a reasonable classic. guess. Claim to fame. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now you, the fact that you finished second, are you happy with that, or do you, since you've been home, have you a few times thought, man, I, I should have got that one, I should have got that one, I could have won, or do you look and go, nah, I was fine, I did as best I could. You know, you definitely, when I rewatched it, I saw some answers where I thought, oh, I just wish I'd thought a second more before I got that wrong. But, you know, there's so much luck involved in the timing of the buzzing in and everything Mm. that, you know, you do your best and whatever happens, happens. Even though, as I say, it was unfortunate the day that it was on just because of everything happening in the world. But some people, a lot of people, I'm sure, have seen it. What's the feedback been for you? Well, I I tend to only get the feedback from my friends and family. So, of course, they tell me I was wonderful. But, uh, (laughs) you know, that's kind of the only feedback I'm I'm wanting to get. So I'm happy to get that. It is, uh, look, anybody, as I say, anybody who can even get through the the qualifying to get on there has done something exceptional because it is, uh, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but to me, the, the getting through that test is harder than the game, at least playing it in front of the TV set on a day-to-day basis. It's way harder and uh, good for you for doing it and good for you for getting there and good for you for finishing in the positive and for getting the final Jeopardy and all those things. It's a, it's a great story. And Kim, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. That is Kim Lifeso. Um, and she's right. There is a dark corner of the internet, not the black web or whatever you call it, the dark web, not that kind of dark corner, but you can go and look up Jeopardy. There's a whole world of Jeopardy stuff and you can go and find her and find her questions and all that kind of stuff if you are so inclined, if you missed that one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is, as you may have noticed, a real dearth of sports going on these days, as in nothing 
it, it's it's so bleak right now in the sports world that uh, we had the TV on here in the studio. I had the TV on with CHCH News this evening that Bubba O'Neill was showing highlights from bass fishing. <laughs> the world, a major league fishing is the name of the league. It is a bass fishing league. That's where we've gotten to. We're now doing highlights of bass. I mean, I love bass fishing. Heaven knows the, the, the one week a year that we go to the cottage. I love some bass fishing. But watching bass fishing, it's kind of one of those things that you do or you don't do. But I don't know about watching other people do it. But let me tell you what else, where else we have gone. With Again, there's no baseball, there's no hockey right now, there's no NBA, there's no March Madness, there's no pick whatever, pick whatever, there's none of it. Everything is off, there's no UFC, there's no boxing, there's wrestling, WrestleMania is going on this weekend if that's your speed. But let me tell you what some of the things are that we have hit the bottom of the barrel with, that you can watch, that is still out there. But this is how bad things have become. I spent five minutes and I probably would have been lured into spending more than five minutes. It's, it is, it is inexplicable, but I spent five compelled minutes yesterday because someone sent me a video of marble racing. (laughs) I'm not making this up. It's someone built a track, carved a path into a beach. So the sand just had a groove down and they let a bunch of marbles go and the beach was on a hill. So the marbles went downhill and you watched and cheered on a particular color marble. It was, uh, it's sad. I'm telling you, it's sad. That's, that's where we are though. And if you go on YouTube, there are, I don't want to say hundreds. There are lots of videos of marble racing that you can be tied in. Oh, Ben, Ben was on a phone on, on the call dealing with someone calling in for the quiz question and just heard me say marble racing. And the look on his face was a four-year-old boy who just came downstairs and saw the Christmas presents under the tree. Marble racing? Yeah, I know. It's going to sound silly, but this is something that... It is silly, but I know. Yes, but this is the thing is I've been into this for quite a while. And that was because of the random algorithm in YouTube brought me all the way through to these recommended videos. And I saw marble racing for the first time and I realized... The simplicity of it is fantastic, but the production quality is incredible. Well, they do. So there are simple ones. I saw the one that was bare bones. It was just a guy on a beach with a track he'd carved out of the sand. Yeah, no, it's it's the same guy. So it's a YouTube channel called Yell's Marble Run or Jelly or Jell. It's J-E-L-L-E apostrophe S Marble Runs. And he's got a whole series. There's a whole league that he started, the Marbula One Race League. <laughs> So if you are either highly intoxicated from your time at home and you've gotten into the hooch <laughs> or, or, or if you have coronavirus and the fever is beginning to get to you, because I think that, that watching marble racing while hallucinating would be something, uh, marble racing, there's your first option. I'll tell you another option that you can have. This is true. It's out there. Virtual camel racing. <laughs> it is not real camel racing. It's video camel racing, and you can cheer on your favorite virtual camel. Uh, I, I, so, so is this just kind of like there's different stats set to each one, and it's like, go? I, I, I Basically two horse races? You know when you go to uh, an arena or a stadium now, and they'll have like a game on the, 
screen and someone, some contestant has to say, follow the bouncing ball or the whatever. It's kind of like that or the race of the the donut race or whatever they have. Well, it's virtual camel racing. And it's, it's, it's comes from the Middle East from, I think it's Saudi Arabia where this is produced. And it's, it's quite something is all I'll say. But if virtual camel racing and marble racing doesn't do it for you as far as fill in sports in the absence of everything else. I saw something today, Ben, that I got to tell you what, this was perhaps the most, well, stunning sport. And, and I use the word stunning unintentionally, although it, it fits in with this thing. I saw something today and it is a highly produced, organized activity that you can find on YouTube and you can cheer for certain teams and certain players. It is called, ready for this? It is called Ultimate Taser Ball. Ultimate Taser Ball. And Ultimate Taser Ball is basically a mix between soccer and European handball. And everyone's got cattle prods? And everyone has a taser. <laughs> like a, what do you call it? Like a woman would have in her purse, a, a, a stun gun. Yeah, like like it's a small, maybe a the size held, of a pad of paper. Yeah, a hand, everyone's, in with one hand, they can hold the ball or kick the ball. In the other hand, they hold a stun gun. And if someone tries to get in your way, you're allowed to stun them. And so people are like <laughs> flopping around on the ground, <laughs> stunned while someone else, it is... Uh, I mean, I I could think this would be a great game to play if you were the guy who was doing the stunning. How long is the waiver to fill this out to join? <laughs> Less exciting if you're the stunny. <laughs> if, if you're if you're the not really good at this game rookie who's just been brought in and you're like running down the floor with a soccer ball, like, ah, I'm gonna score, I'm gonna score, and then four guys from the other team all stun you. Uh, not that exciting. Who's that? That's Philip. He doesn't really play. He's just here to stun people. <laughs> he's, just, he's the stun, yeah, the stunner, the goon. You know, in, in every sport, you have someone who's like a, in chess. You have the pawn, who is really kind of a sacrificial guy. Imagine if you're the the taser ball stun <laughs> p- pawn, who you know, send him out front to be the blocker. Bzz, 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 bzz. <laughs> the meat shield. <laughs> the meat. <laughs> Go on, look at. I'm not making this up. Taser ultimate taser ball. It is. It is truly among the stupidest things I've ever seen. But, but if you're really at the all-time lowest ebb for sports and you need something competitive to watch and you have exhausted everything else possible, Ben, I offer up to you ferret legging. Ferret legging. (laughs) Ferret legging. Oh, is this the one where they, like, everyone wears legs, they, like, tie the bottom of the ankles, and then without wearing underwear, you... Yes, that is the, that is the, um, the extra bonus here. Yes, you tie the ankles of your track pants, of loose track pants, and then you drop a rather miffed ferret... (laughs) down your pants and immediately cinch the belt part (laughs) to lock it in place. And, you know, if you've never been around a ferret, they have rather sharp claws and they have teeth and they are not pleasant animals, especially when they get a little upset. And the, as I say, the second rule is you're not, you're not allowed to wear underwear in ferret legging. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the winner, the winner is the man, and it's always a man for reasons I, I'm not really sure. Because um, a woman's too smart to I, do well, this. Uh, uh, okay, that that is the reason. Yes, but the the winner is the guy who can keep the ferret in his pants the longest. <laughs> If you don't give up and you don't yank the ferret out of your pants, uh, and boy, talk about a sport jammed with euphemisms, but (laughs) the the man who can keep his ferret in his pants for the longest is the winner. It is, uh, it is on YouTube as well. Do they, are you honestly the winner if you're the person who can keep a ferret in your pants the longest? I don't know that anyone who would ever put a ferret in their pants could fairly be called a winner. (laughs) But, you know, if you, if you watch rodeo, the, the, the irony of rodeo is that you want the bull, if you're in the bull ride, you want the angriest, gnarliest, meanest, slobberingest, jumpingest bull. You don't want a docile bull because you get more points if you get an angry bull. I don't know that you necessarily want the most rabid, furious, <laughs> claustrophobic <laughs> ferret jammed into your pants while you're underwearless. Um, Are the injuries kind of similar to bull riding? I would say, well, now, do you, do you know how they make the bulls jump and, and jump around in rodeo? Isn't there a rope of some sort that gets wrapped around them? It's called the... a tickle belt. Ah, and it's, and it's harmless. It's a harmless thing, in case you're wondering. It's a harmless device, but it goes around the bull's pieces, and it's kind of chafy. And so you'll see when they're about to jump out of the chute, when the bull, when they're about to open the door and the bull, there's a guy there holding a piece of rope. And right when they open the door, he yanks it up and it cinches the part around the bull's... The bull. The bull's part. The bull's bull. And that's what makes him go. Well, I don't know that you necessarily have to do that to a ferret down a man's pants. Is that what the... There is no belt. They just get you a tickle belt and... Someone else. I can't, I can't even imagine what the injuries would look like. And I don't, you know, what'd be the worst part about this? If you were the, if you were the team doctor for, for, for ferret legging and after each round, Bob had to come and see you as Bob, what's, what, where are your injuries? Well, I think I lost my wiener. He ripped it right off. Well, Bob, that's, uh, and then the commentators, well, Bob is out. Bob is now a eunuch. (laughs) Bob is, Bob has been eliminated because Bob is now singing with the Vienna boys choir. (laughs) Oh, what a stupid sport. But if you need something, uh, there's some offerings for you. (laughs) It's stupid to do, not so stupid to watch. Oh, it's painful to watch is what it is. You can watch maybe a few seconds of it until you have to turn your head and realize Anyone, the, the, I don't know who the first man was who said, you know, I've got a terrific idea for a pastime. I'm going to take an angry, sharp-toothed, angry, clawed rodent and ram it down my pants and see how long I can last. But somebody did. And then someone came along and said, oh yeah, I'll do it without underwear. <laughs> and you want to know something? I will make a bet right now with you that the first time this happened, alcohol may have been involved. <laughs> Just a guess. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.